Just please uh, help me today, and, uh, and I pray that you would be most prominent today, and uh, that your your word today, what you want to say, uh, and even sometimes when people hear things that are different than what the preacher actually said, I pray that all of that is the fact that you're active and you're doing some cool stuff, and that's what we want you to do today. So please help me, and uh, please help all of us to listen to you. Amen. Jesus did say that, you know. He said that he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So uh, any of you who have got kids know that you can uh, have a child that uh, hears and then you can have a child that actually listens. Everyone know what I'm talking about? They know, they stand there, yeah, they heard what you said, but then they go off and do whatever they want. And I think that's what Jesus was speaking to. Last week uh, we had a bit of a look at 2 Kings uh, 6 and 7, a classic story about uh, four lepers outside the city gate and uh, the fact that uh, there was a massive siege on, there was a, a huge famine, people were literally eating each other's children uh, because the situation was so dire. They were eating doves' dung and they were eating each other's children and they were eating donkeys' heads uh, at quite an exorbitant price. Um, and the four lepers at the city gate ended up uh, unwittingly becoming part of God's plan to actually bring liberation to the city and to feed the whole city. Uh, they went out to the uh, enemy, they had a nice little philosophical discussion amongst themselves and they worked out the best plan was to take the risk of being killed by the enemy um, because the enemy's the only one that had food left. So they went out and lo and behold, the night before God had freaked out the enemy and they all left and they left everything there and they left four lepers who were very hungry uh, to a big salad bar, all right, wise as smorgasbord. And uh, of course, what did they do? They did probably what most of us would do. They got in, they ate of the food, they grabbed the jewellery and the gold and they went and hit it. And then the party pooper in the group, or maybe it was more than one, it sounds like it was more than one because a lot of them had a discussion about it, made the comment, they said, we're not doing right. Everyone's in the city and they think there's an enemy here, we're having a smorgasbord, we've got full tummies, we've just gone and hidden a whole bunch of valuable stuff, we should go and let them know that there's some food here. Good plan. So they go and let them know that there's some food and uh, the city comes out and... uh, the price of food and the, the quality of food uh, goes up significantly from dove's dung and uh, someone else's child, which uh, wouldn't be hard. Um, it's probably, uh, I've, I've thought for a while that the leper's comment, um, we are not doing right, is uh, quite, I think, actually quite common, uh, quite a common scenario for the church. I think the church... Typically, if you talk about a missional kind of heart and, and wanting to win other people, the church probably has been, over the years, has probably been more guilty of sitting down and pigging out on God and on the grace of God and the good things that God brings and probably not as good at sharing it uh, with other people. And that's a really sad indictment upon us as a church. And that's one thing that uh, we've got a really strong heart for in the project here is we think we've found the coolest thing. We do. Anyone else think that? We've found the coolest thing. Like this, this is like beyond cool. This is, this is amazing. And it's so amazing, it's criminal to keep it to yourself. And I actually think it is criminal to keep it to yourself. But unfortunately, that's often what we do. So let me, I'm going to take you on a bit of a ride today, and it's all going to be about having a redemptive posture. All right? And it's going to apply to you, and it'll apply to me as well. I just want to review, for those who are here, for the Redeeming Christmas um, series that we did last year, I did some stuff on on the nature of evil, which is really, really critical. What you actually find about the nature of evil, uh, a lot of people actually think that evil's kind of this blob that floats somewhere and someone's just got to find it with a satellite or with something, some heat-seeking missile and will destroy the thing. The truth is, though, if you actually read the Bible, you find that evil actually is a corruption of things that are very good. So you see this in 2 Peter 1 verse 4, it says, He has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. And this, in 1 John 1 verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. One commentary that I read about this when I was preparing for the Redeeming Christmas series last year suggested that what John is saying in 1 John 1 9 is he's saying, People get polluted. It's like going down to an inner city waterway and you walk in there and there's, uh, there's drums, empty chemical drums and there's 44-gallon drums and there's rusty cars 
partially submerged in it and there's all rubbish on the side and there's plastic bags from Woolworths. This is what John's saying. He's saying that evil is uh, something that was good that actually got corrupted. C.S. Lewis echoes this um, with this quote. He says, Goodness is, so to speak, itself. Badness is only spoiled goodness and there must be something good first before it can be spoiled. This is really, really critical to the concept of redemption. If evil is an entity in itself, your only option is to totally destroy it and annihilate it. But if evil is something good that's being corrupted, you've actually got an opportunity to recycle it and to renew it and to refresh it. All right? And this is the amazing thing that God does, is that God comes and he recycles, refreshes and renews things. But he can't do that, in a sense, if evil is an entity in itself. His only option is to destroy it. And if I make this totally personal, I think this is the case for all of us. The problem for all of us is that we got corrupted and polluted. And the truth is that some of us, well, let's just say this, some of us haven't begun the journey of cleansing and and refreshing. Some of us have, but the truth is that all of us are still stained and polluted somehow. And this is a really cool thing because it means if you've come today and you don't love Jesus and you haven't gone on the journey to actually see God work through and deal with your corruption and your pollution, you're kind of almost in the same boat as everyone else who has started that. You're all sailing on the same boat. You're just maybe sitting in different seats, all right? And that's why when you come to church, when you come to the project, I hope we never, ever, ever uh, look down our noses at you and be judgmental toward you because the truth is that we all need refreshing and we all need God to actually cleanse us of our pollution. Amen? Yeah. The other day we were sitting at the table and uh, my boys do this. I've got four sons and uh, the oldest one's seven. My boys do this, play this really funny game every now and then. At least they think it's funny. And Angie and I sit there and kind of frown a little bit and think this is not even that good. But anyway, they play this. I don't know whether anyone else's kids have done it. They play opposite game. All right, And their opposite game is they're going to sit there and they're going to start asking you questions and you can ask them questions and the right answer is actually the opposite of what they say. All right, And the interesting thing was uh, my oldest son said to Ange, he said, uh, he said, Mommy, do you want a smack? Didn't he? He said, do you want a smack, right? Now, he's, he's hoping she'll say no because he's playing opposite game, right? And that would be uncool for a kid to smack their mum. Agreed? So then I turned around and I said to him, all right, Geordie, I said, do you want a smack? And before you answer, you need to think about whether I'm playing opposite game or not. <laughs> that really slowed him down. <laughs> but honestly, that is what God's on about. God is on about opposite game, all right? He's on about opposite game. He's on about making you the opposite, in a sense, of what you were before you came to him. But even to a large extent, after you come to him, he wants to make you the opposite of what you are when you first come to him. Because you don't come to God because you're good, do you? Anyone, to get through the gate, the gate to get to God is I'm a loser and I've got nothing to offer you. And God celebrates at that point in time. It's like, you idiot, why did it take you so long to work that out? That's the only way you can get to me is by thinking you've got nothing to offer me. Because he comes in and he says, the deal is you bring nothing and I bring everything. That's how it works. And it's like that. For those who have been Christians, the weird thing is that sometimes we switch that around and we think, okay, we got through the door by bringing nothing and then we've got to start making a contribution. It never changes. It never, ever changes. And in fact, Paul has a crack at the Galatians about that in Galatians and he says, why did you start with grace and the gifts of God and then turn to your own effort? Don't do it. All right? So when you get up in the morning and you haven't done a quiet time, you don't all of a sudden not become God's child because you didn't do the right stuff, all right? Because the right stuff never got you there in the first place. All right. God is all about reversal. Check these out. I'm going to fly through these. You can check them out if you want. Check this out. What you've actually got in the Bible is you see God creates Eden. Eden gets destroyed by the flood. And then what you've got in uh, Revelations 22, when Jesus comes back, is he's actually created the new Eden. Because in Revelation 22.2, it talks about the tree of life being in heaven. Opposite game. God starts with creation. A perfect creation. The flood destroys everything. In fact, the whole of the world starts to unravel with the flood. Imagine how brutal it would have been in the flood. Just the anarchy 
and the, and the desolation and the tragedy of that. But then God plays opposite game, doesn't he? I'm going to make a new heaven and a new earth. In fact, First Peter 3, I think it is, talks about how God's going to purify the earth with fire and then recreate it. And he's going to bring heaven down to earth and we're all going to live down here. All right? Amazing. Amazing stuff. At the start in Genesis chapter 2, man and woman, humankind, are unified. What happens? Sin comes in and then at the Tower of Babel, everyone gets scattered. Different languages, different races, they all get scattered and then God plays opposite game, doesn't he? Revelation 7, 9 to 10 talks about how God is going to bring everyone together from every tribe and from every people group and every language and in unison they're all going to come and they're going to praise God at the end. Opposite game. I've already uh, talked about that one. The earth perfect in Eden to corrupted with sin. God purifies it. He plays opposite game. What about this one? God takes, uh, makes children of his. But you know what? Romans 5.10 tells us that because of sin, his children became his enemies. And it ended up that his children killed him. Isn't that a weird thought? Well, think about that. I mean, you'd take your kid to court if they killed you, wouldn't you? I mean, you wouldn't be able to, but... <laughs> You know what I'm saying? It's all these cases where children want to divorce their parents. Well, man, like if there was ever a case for divorcing your, your children, that'd be it, wouldn't it? His children become his enemies. And what does he do then? John 1, verse 12 to 13, it's through Christ's death that his children, who became his enemies, end up playing opposite game and end up coming back and being his children again. They get the right to become children of God. And even further than that, you've got in the Garden of Eden, you've got humans are actually perfect images of God. They become corrupted. And then they actually, God plays opposite game with them and they they shine like the sun. God loves playing opposite game and he loves playing opposite game with us and with creation. If we go to, I uh, just want to focus a little bit on this whole notion of uh, being made in God's image. Check this out. This is uh, Romans 8.29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Isn't this interesting? So we started out and God said, I've made mankind in my own image. Man and woman are both in my image. They mess things up. They messed up that image. It's like uh, ancient mirrors that are made out of bronze and it just got so tarnished it's difficult to see your face in it. They messed it up. They wrecked it. Well, what's God going to do? He's going to bring his son later on because he actually wants people to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus. Because by the time Jesus comes, in fact, by the time we get to Genesis chapter 3, uh, between Genesis 3 and when Jesus comes, we actually have no living example of what someone looks like who is made in the image of God in a perfect way. We've only got corrupted versions of it. And then Jesus comes and he walks on the earth and he walks in, in a sinful world and he teaches everyone what it looks like to image God properly. Two Corinthians 3.18, And we all, with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. Isn't that interesting? From one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So God's plan for you, I mean, the simple way of saying it, which you've heard tons and tons probably, is God wants you to be like Jesus. The reason why God wants you to be like Jesus is because he's playing opposite game. All right? And for him, it's not a game. It's a very, very serious pursuit and endeavour. Mike Wilkerson uh, wrote a book called uh, Redemption and he makes this comment about the uh, image of God in man. In a sense, it would be less tragic if it had been utterly lost, the image of God in man. Instead, with the very capacities God gave us to image him and steward his creation, we defame his name, vandalise his world and violate his image in others, which amounts to treason. In so doing, we, in fact, image that arch rebel Satan. Ponder that one. Abuse, abortion, racism and genocide are so heinous precisely because they violate the image of God. Every single person here, if I can put it this way, every single person here is made to look a little bit like God. 
But the truth is that what we've done, typical to what evil is, is we've taken that and we've corrupted it and we've twisted it and we've mangled it. So what does God do? Well, God comes on a redemptive mission. This is what he's on. He's been on this redemptive mission the whole of history. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to what? To redeem. All right, let's just pause for a minute here. What does the uh, concept of redeem mean? What does the word mean? What's the concept mean? See, uh, I did a little bit of research on this, and I actually think the fundamental idea of of redemption actually took place in antiquity. And uh, it was when a a victor in battle would take prisoners, and they would let it be known that he was, he would let it be known that he was ready to release them on payment of a price. And the, the payment and the process through which you would get those prisoners back is called redemption. It was called redemption. That's how you get them. And we do it all nowhere near as grandly. We do it with uh, vouchers, don't we? I mean, it says on the bottom of vouchers, you can take it, you can redeem it for something else. All right? But think about this. God knows that when human beings solve their themselves to another god in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, they, they, they went under slavery. They were in slavery. And the weird thing is that those who have come to Christ and have got a relationship with Jesus and love him, at some level have experienced some sort of freedom. But the truth is that probably all of us are still slaves to things. We're still slaves to things. There's still things that have us under their control. I watched a uh, TV I watched uh, the ABC News a few weeks ago, and they uh, actually, it might have even been last week, they, uh, they talked about people getting people out of pokies addictions. You don't see the word addictions anywhere in the Bible. What you see is the word slavery. So people who've got addictions are really, they're really slaves to something. And hearing how they were getting people off their addictions is quite fascinating. But this is God's plan. God's plan is that his people have got themselves into slavery, and I'm going to free them. I'm going to pay the price, like the song said that we sang at the start of the service. There was a lot of S words in that sentence, wasn't there? Like the song said, God pays the ransom. We're stuck, we're trapped, we're slaves, and someone needs to pay the ransom to get us free, and he does that. He buys us back. He buys us back from something else that has taken us as its possession. We see this in Romans 3, verse 23 also. It says, All have sinned, They've disobeyed God and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, they're made right by his grace as a free gift through the redemption, through the buying back that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, which just means a wrath remover, so he took away the anger that that we were deserving of by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. So here's the deal. Let me give you a really specific example. And I've talked about this at the project before, but in the Old Testament, David should have been out at war. He's standing on his rooftop. He sees a woman having a bath. All right. Thinks that'd be cool. All right. So he sends a servant down, uh, totally in a a non-primary school way. But often, you know, when dudes ask a girl out, they get their buddy to do it. You know, it's it's pretty lame. But anyway, he sends a dude down. He says, oh, the king wants a date with you, in inverted commas. Uh, she kind of comes up, they get jiggy with it, and she gets pregnant, and uh, they, have a, um, they have a baby. And you know what? Uh, the prophet Nathan comes to David and confronts him about his disobedience to God, and uh, at some level, God actually grants forgiveness to David. And you can see in uh, Romans chapter 3 here that uh, Paul's actually addressing this issue. David's done some terrible things. He's got the, uh, the, the lady's husband killed, He slept with her. The baby ends up dying. There's huge consequences for um, his sin. And God, in the Old Testament, forgives him. And quite rightly, someone could stand around and go, that's not right. That's not fair. You're not allowed to do that. And that's what Paul's saying in in Romans chapter 3 here. He's saying people could accuse God of doing the wrong thing because people did wrong things and he forgave them. No one's paid for that. That's not fair. You're not a good judge. And so Jesus becomes part of this whole process. He comes in and he dies on the cross and on the cross God says, look, look, way back then I purchased this guy's redemption with a man, my son Jesus Christ, 
Who is God who died on the cross? And it's almost a sense like God gets vindicated at that point. Do you see that? And that's really important, all right? Because if Toowoomba District Court in here, someone had a dead set guilty person that walked in and the judge let them off, we'd all be crying foul. It'd be in the newspapers the next day and everyone would be going, that's not fair. Well, in a sense, until Jesus came, there was probably a bit of an argument there where people could say, that's not fair. How can you forgive them? They did something heinous. They did something terrible. And you forgave them. You let them, you let them off. And on the cross, God points to his son and he says, see, that, that's the ransom. That's the price paid. I didn't just gloss over it. I'm not a bad judge. We actually see this as a beautiful phrase in uh, Psalms 85, verse 10, where uh, the psalmist says, Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Isn't that beautiful? You see, that's exactly what happens on the cross, is God's righteousness and his peace that he brings for people that don't know him, the peace that we desperately need, the peace that none of us have earned, we've only earned chaos and anarchy, haven't we? We've corrupted things. Everyone here has. I have. But on the cross, what happens? Well, God's peace and his righteousness meet. Everything's satisfied. So what we actually find is that God actually is on mission from the first sin. He's on this redemptive mission from the first sin. This is Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. What God's saying here from the very, very first sin is I'm going on a redemptive, ransom-paying rescue mission. You see, and it culminates in the cross. And it hasn't finished yet. You see that Jesus, in essence, has done all of the job that needs to be done on the cross, but in its fullness, there's still work that needs to be done. It's like a battle where uh, one, team, one side has won the battle, but there's still insurgents, there's still little pockets of resistance around the place, and those things need to be sorted out. And, and the army still needs to go in and just do the mopping up operation. And here's the truth. Maybe there's some of you here today that don't love Jesus and you don't know Jesus. And God actually wants to win the decisive battle for you. And he wants to win the decisive battle for you today. Or maybe tomorrow. I don't know when it is, but he wants there to be a decisive battle where he wins it for you. And he pays the ransom to rescue you from slavery. But for those of us who have loved Jesus for a while, it's not over yet. Don't we know that there are times that we sense in our hearts, maybe even every day, maybe even every hour sometimes, maybe even every minute, we sense the pockets of resistance. We sense the fact that God's paid the ransom, he's redeemed us, but there's still some resistance in underneath there. There's still some slavery in there. See, you shouldn't take this for granted, right? The scary thing about preparing this message this week, and I think I said this to Anne, is, is I just said... This is like weird because everyone's heard this. And whenever you're saying something that everyone's heard, you kind of think they're going to sit there and think, ho-hum. This is amazing. This is incredible. And I reckon one of the greatest tragedies of the church is that we just take really precious truths that we've heard lots and lots of times and it doesn't do anything for us in our hearts anymore. I mean, we almost need to revisit the time that we got saved when we sensed that God came and he redeemed us and he paid the ransom and he changed our hearts. Well, I was at a church a little while ago and someone asked a, a, a Q&A question that went like this. Does God love the devil? It was something like this. And would God forgive the devil if he repented? You ever asked yourself that? I'm not even, well, I am going to answer it, but I've been asked that by students, I think, this year. And to be honest... It's kind of, I appreciate them asking a question, so I'm not putting them down, but it's a dumb question because it's never going to happen. He hates God. He hates God. And you know what? He's never going to repent. So you know what? We actually don't find anywhere in the Bible, anywhere where it says that there's any option of redemption for the devil and the third of angels that he took out of heaven. It's, it's not there. 
It's just like they're just going to get torched. All right? And it's weird because we kind of sit and we're just going to get really accustomed to the fact that God's redeeming and he wants to play opposite game with us and totally change us and he's going to refresh the, the world and he's, he's redeeming everything. And we're just going to think, oh, that's really nice. But it's in a sense that we actually stand right on the edge of, the, of a precipice, don't we? We're, we're on the side where the redemption's happening. The angels aren't. They mess up, it's done. Matthew 25, 41 to 42, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It's clear. There's absolutely no doubt about it. God is rolling up his sleeves to mete out some serious punishment on the devil and his angels. There's no redemption. You get to be redeemed. That's amazing. Amen? That's amazing. Like You, you need to stand there and almost have that... You know when you stand right on a big height and you get that, well, I get the, you get tingling in your feet, kind of runs up your calves at the back and you're just kind of going, I'm safe, but I'm right near the edge, you know? And that's kind of the sense about it is, uh, is that God's doing some amazing thing for us, but he's not doing it for the devil and his angels. In fact, if you go to 1 Peter 1 verse uh, 10 to 12, I'll read verse 12, um, it was revealed to them that they were not serving, sorry, that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you. So he's talking about the writing of the scriptures. Uh, Through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And he makes this really interesting comment at the end of this sentence here. He says, uh, things into which angels long to look. I mean, we've got absolutely no evidence for any of this sort of stuff happening at all. All right. But I sometimes sit around and I think, I wonder what sort of conversations are happening between the angels. I mean, they've seen the devil take a third of heaven, a third of the angels from heaven with him. Always, I love asking kids at, at school. I say, right, okay, so how many angels did the devil take with him? They go, a third. And I go, how many's that? <laughs> I don't know, because you don't know the total. It's just a fun question to ask. Because <laughs> they think there's an answer and they don't know it. And then you go, no, I don't know either. They go, oh, okay. But can you imagine? Can you imagine a, um, a couple of angels sitting down? Right? And they've just seen the devil and a third get kicked out of heaven. Right? They're kicked out. Right? And I'm sure they probably heard God talking about what he's going to do to them. And then God says, well, here's what I'm going to do with these people who have just done exactly the same thing that the devil did. All right? Now, the devil got all messed up because he wanted to put himself in the middle and get God out of the middle. Now, the problem with that is you can't get God out of the middle. All right? And what it did is, is it got Satan out of heaven. That's what it got him. And he and his angels got kicked out. And so he comes and he throws a bit of a temptation out to Adam and Eve. And what do they do? They go, cool, let's put ourselves in the middle. This will work out really well. And can you imagine a conversation between angels where they're going, he's doing what? What's he doing? No, he's not doing that. Look what he did to Satan over there and his angels. He's not going to do it. And God's going, no, that's what I'm going to do. And they're going, no, no, give me a closer look. And this is almost the kind of vibe that you see from Peter here where he says, there's things that the angels long to look into that they just don't get. And I think one of those things is redemption. And you actually find in Revelation that it talks about the fact that there's a song of salvation and redemption that only people who have been redeemed by God can sing. It actually says the angels can't sing it. We'll sing a song that no one else can sing. That's amazing. Because you know what? You don't deserve it. You're really pathetic. You've actually got nothing to offer him. Now, you've made in his image, but you've turned that, haven't you? And you've messed it. Now, don't get all offended with me, but this is true of me too. And that's part of the wonder, isn't it? That the angels could sit there and just go, man, we'd love to... How do you get your head around that? Right? You imagine the day that God walks out and he goes, righto, it's time for my son to become a human. And they're going, what? <laughs> what are you doing? Come on. And then it comes out somewhere in heaven. He maybe, I don't know, I don't want to make light of God, but he's walking around and he tells some of the angels, he's actually going to die on a cross. And they're going, what are you, insane? This is crazy. But he did it for us. And we stand on the precipice with a God that doesn't just want to bring liberation and freedom from slavery in a, in, a, uh, 
in an essence sense, but he actually wants to bring it in its fullness. So today, if you're someone that doesn't love Jesus and you've never come to him and he's never rescued you, there's never been a point where the rescue began, they can start today. But for everyone else, I guarantee you that we still need rescuing, don't we? We still need redeeming. We're still in slavery. And some of us, and I'll talk about this a little bit later, some of us have had some very brutal things happen to us that have put us in slavery. Some of us have suffered and we've struggled very, very deeply with some stuff. And it's made us a slave. It's made us a slave. And then we've added on top of that our own reactions to it and our own seeking for a saviour outside of God. And it just gets really, really messy and really complicated because we kind of became our own saviour. And the truth is that God's redemption is just good news for everyone. Absolutely everyone. Bill Clem says this in his book Disciple. He says, The most shocking aspect to his story is that humans are redeemable beings. Angels were faced with aligning themselves with God or with his adversary, Satan, but there was no rebounding. No help or helper given to them to bring them from anarchists to ones accepted. Peter tells us that the angels watch closely this redemptive story of God's. They do not get to experience redemption and so they must watch and see how we are rescued from those who image false gods and are made into refined image bearers of God's design. So what we actually find is that this mission, this redemption of God is a community project at a divine level. The father takes leadership and seeks after lost children. The son pays a sacrifice and the Holy Spirit convicts of sin and brings about a change in people's hearts. Here's a, probably one of the most well-known verses uh, probably across the world, I would think, for people that love Jesus and those who don't. For God so loved the world that he gave his only one son. See, God the Father so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. You see that? And the Holy Spirit is part of his plan. Do you see that? You've got the whole Trinity in partnership together. This is the weird thing, you know, because one of the things that people complain about uh, with regard to the church is the church is too judgmental. Now, it's pretty hard to get judgmental when you realise that that's the gig that God's on. <laughs> All right? It's just really hard because he's not getting judgmental. That's what John 3.17 saying. I didn't come in to condemn or to judge the world. I came to save them. So just, man, it's just weird how we get it wrong. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. I want to show you a clip. Has anyone seen the movie John Q? It is a cracking movie. Um, Ange, uh, last year, Ange and I started watching it. And I'd seen, we'd seen it before, but we started watching it again. And man, I was just too burnt out. I wasn't burnt out, burnt out, but I was too tired and worn out last year and I was taking it too seriously, so I had to go to bed. But uh, she stayed up and she said, man, there is this sweet scene in there that you've got to see. And uh, I'm just going to play this scene. I'll give you a little bit of context. It goes for about three and a half minutes, but uh, I watched it about three or four times yesterday and it almost brings me to tears uh, yesterday. I had my boys sitting around, so you've got to look tough. I didn't cry, but I was, yeah. The, the spa was filling up. Um, here's the deal. Uh, this guy, John, he's played by Denzel Washington, and uh, his son has developed a heart condition. He thinks that's all sweet. That's no dramas because I'm covered by uh, health insurance. This is in, in the States, obviously. So he goes to his health insurer because uh, it looks like the son's going to need some massive medical help. In fact, the son gets to the point where the only hope is uh, for the son to have a heart transplant. So he goes to his insurance company, and his insurance company says, uh, well, look, your, your company didn't tell you, but they actually changed your policy a bit, or you weren't aware of it, or there's something going on there, and it, those really expensive things are not covered anymore. So what he does, and this is his only son, him and his wife, it's his only son, he's got this heart condition, he's going to die without a shadow of a doubt, and the only hope is for a heart transplant. So what he does is he goes out and he just starts selling everything. Everything that he's got, he just sells it. And he doesn't even get close 
to the amount of money that he needs to do the heart transplant for his son. His son's getting sicker and sicker. And uh, I actually think it was one day his wife and he had a uh, quite an intense argument about it. And uh, she said, you've just got to do something. And uh, so what he does is he grabs a gun and he goes and he takes an emergency room hostage at a local hospital. Everyone who's in the emergency room, he obviously doesn't want to hurt anyone, but he's taken the whole emergency room hostage. Uh, In the process, they've sent a SWAT dude in through the ducting and he's been shot in the arm and and, uh, a whole bunch of things have happened. And even at one point in time, a live feed of the hospital security cameras actually goes out through the, the mass media. And so what you've got, you won't see them here, but just prior to this scene, is uh, hordes of people outside and they're all cheering for John because they all feel similar to John. They think you've just got to do something. You've got to do something for your kid, even when you don't have enough money. So there's this whole tussle going on, but the cops are there and you've got a hostage taker and he's got a gun and he's threatening to hurt people. And what you've actually got here is a scene where uh, John's son has just been wheeled in to the emergency room because he was up in another part of the hospital. Uh, and they've wheeled him down here, and you've got this discussion between uh, one of the uh, doctors who is hostage to John and, um, and John himself. Just so that you know, uh, there's a few expletives in it, and I've actually uh, kind of, not bleeped them out, but I've just kind of muted them out. So I'm just pretty keen for us just not to get distracted, just to see if you can put yourself inside his head and, uh, and feel uh, where all of this is up to. If you've got kids, I don't know whether we've got any kids. Kids maybe just a fraction intense at the end. Uh, here we go. We're in trouble, John. Mike's blood pressure has dropped into the mid-40s. His atrial blood pressure should be in the low teens. It's 35. I'm sorry, John. Without a new heart, he's not going to make it. Okay. I'll take mine. You heard me. Take my heart and you put it in, Mike. Oh, man, you done lost your mind. You can't be serious. You bet I'm serious. I'm dead serious. Oh, my. Wow. Man, that means you'll be dead. And my son will live. John, you can't do this. It's the only way. No, you don't understand. Physically, you can't do this. Yes, I can. I kill myself. You open me up, you take my heart. Man, that's just crazy. No, no, we can't just remove your heart and put it into Michael's body. John, there are too many unknowns. Matching a donor and a recipient is extremely complicated. There are several critical tests that have to be taken. Like what? Cross matches for blood type, chest cavity measurements. If both blood tissues are not completely compatible... Come on, I know all about compatibility, okay? We've been tested up the wazoo. We're both B positive, our tissues match, his heart's three times the size of a normal heart, so mine will fit. You know, well, we're compatible. It's out of the question, Doc, I'm telling you, he will make it. Can't do it, John. No. So what? So if I'm laying on the floor dead, you're not going to take my heart and put it in him to save his life? You'll let two people die instead of one because of a technicality? You know what? I think what John is trying to do is right. Me too. I think it's so brave. It's brave, but what do you think Mike would want? What about your wife? Mike's too young to know what's good for him. I'm his father. It's my job to protect him. Besides, Denise would do the same thing. John, look. I know what's happening to Mike is bad, man. Matter of fact, it's the worst. But killing yourself ain't gonna solve a thing. Sometimes you just gotta let go and let God. Just accept it, brother. Accept it? Accept what? Accept what? That Mike is going to die. No. No, I don't accept that. Ever. No, I reject that out of hand. I mean, look, he... All right, he's a patient to you, I understand. But if you... He's a good kid. I mean, he's, he, he, he loves bodybuilding. He's, he wants to be a bodybuilder. Can you believe that? And he, he's funny. He's, you'd like him. You'd like him, Doc, if you got to know him. I do like All him. All right, then. Then please, I'm just begging you. Step outside the room. I'd like to, John. I really would. But what you're asking crosses the line. It is completely... Unethical. So what? I'm, I'm not. I'm crossing the line. You're crossing the line. The whole system crossing the line. Who cares? Maybe you don't understand what I'm talking about. All right. I don't give a. D- My son's gonna live. Maybe you guys haven't figured that out by now. I'll do whatever I gotta do for him to live. So what are you gonna do? You're gonna shoot me if I don't operate? No. I'm gonna kill myself. All right. Let's just see what happens. I mean, that's what this is all about, right? He needs a donor. Somebody's got to die in order for him to live. I'm his father. It's me. 
All right. Right? All right, what? I'll do it if that's what you want. Are you serious? You're going to let him kill himself? Once he's dead, why not? And it's so cool because uh, it makes me think of God the Father. Can you imagine him saying, I'm his father. I'm her father. It's my job to protect you. Accept it. God's having a conversation maybe with an, with an angel. Accept it. Accept that they're just going to die. I don't accept that ever. I reject that out of hand. You'd like him. Wouldn't God say that about you? You'd like him. Imagine the conversation with an angel. He's saying, hey, you'd like him. Look at him. I made him a little bit like me. I made her a little bit like me. You'd like him, really. There's something good in there. He wears me. He's made in my image. She wears me. She's made in my image. And maybe the angel says, what you're asking crosses a line, God. It crosses a line. Gods don't die for their people. What does God say? He says, my son and my daughters are going to live. They're going to live. I'll do whatever I've got to do for them to live. I'm going to kill myself. He needs a donor. Somebody's got to die in order for him to live. I'm his father. It's me. Isn't this cool? Isn't this good? Isn't this beautiful? I'm not living without my son. God didn't want to live without you. He just didn't. And this is God's heart, not just for us who are here at church today. This is God's heart for every single person who's not at church today as well. That's why he did it. He did it because he wants them. He wants his kids back. He wants to redeem them. He wants to renew them and refresh them. And so God actually invites us to join him on his mission. You know what he's saying? He's saying, I've already started it. Just get on board with me. Get on board with me. Go and tell other people about me. Go and tell them what I've done for them because I want them back. He doesn't want to waste a death, in inverted commas. Don't waste Christ's death, he says. Go and tell them about my death. So God doesn't want us to judge people. He wants us to rescue them. He wants us to love them. He wants us to even see God in them. Because everyone on the whole planet has got a little bit of God. They're made a little bit like God. You can be refreshed by the image of God that other people have because there's something valuable in there and it's not of themselves. It's intrinsically in them because of the way that God created things. In short, you see, we're actually on mission as a church because God is. And if he wasn't on mission first, we wouldn't be on mission. This is not our idea. This is his idea. He's been doing it since Genesis chapter 3 and he's been saying, I'm not going to live without my son or my daughter. It's just our turn at the moment to join him and to play the part that he wants us to play. You see, it's not God saying, you go out and do it, you go and do the dirty work, and I'll I'll be sweet. I'll stay safe and comfortable. You can go and do the dirty work. He's doing the dirty work. He's out there. He just wants you to join him, and he wants us to join him. Mark 1, verse 40 to 42, I think is very instructive Uh, regarding how mission has changed. See, in the Old Testament, it was like you needed to be separate from people to be holy and righteous. A leper came to Jesus, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. You see, this is exactly the spirit of Jesus, that now, instead of the Old Testament model where you don't go near lepers, they've got to ring a bell and they've got to be separate from everyone because you can get unclean by touching them, now it's all changed because of the redemptive work that was done on the cross, that Jesus now, he has this vibe where when he touches you, you get clean. He doesn't get dirty, you get clean. And that's how it works. And this is why God's saying, go out everywhere and tell people who've become a bit polluted, like we are, Tell them that there's someone who can touch them and will bring cleansing to them and freshness to them. Isn't that amazing? Does anyone else agree with me? Isn't that amazing? So now you're not actually going out and you just... I mean, I reckon it's almost like churches can get this... and Christians, and I I reckon I've had it for 30 years of my life. You've just got this mentality, like you kind of got that siege mentality where you're just kind of going, no, they're all the bad people. 
and there's absolutely nothing valuable about them because they're corrupt, I'm just going to come back here and I'm going to make sure that I get everything right and I'm going to hide behind my wall because I don't want to touch them because if I touch them, they're going to make me dirty. They're going to corrupt me. Well, you don't get it. Peter didn't get it for years. Peter didn't get it. And to be honest, on the surface, I would have said something like, no, no, I I do love them and I think there's something valuable. But underneath is that self-righteous kind of pride kicking around underneath. And Jesus is the kind of guy that moves out and moves towards someone who maybe doesn't even have a hand and everyone else is going... (gasps) And maybe some angels are going... (gasps) What's he doing? He's touching it unclean person but that's how jesus works now and that's the kind of mission he invites us to do not a judgmental mission to go out and give it to people but a mission that goes out and says i've got something that can make you clean i've got something that can set you free from your slavery i've got something that can deal with your guilt that you feel it's just a weird thing about the counseling profession is that no one wants to talk about guilt anymore the only, way, the only reason you talk about guilt is just so that you can get it off your back. They don't talk about how you do it. They don't talk about effective ways to resolve it. Just, You've just got to get it off. Guilt's a bad thing. Well, people feel guilty because they're bad. When I feel guilty, it's because I've done something bad. And what you need is you need someone who can come and make you and touch you and make you clean again. You see that? And maybe even this morning, I mean, I had a bit, spent a bit of time asking the Lord to really help me this morning because family went a little bit chaotic and there was a whole bunch of different pressures and it's just one of those mornings where you have three different questions asked at the same time by three different children and you're just trying to keep everyone happy. You're just trying to sort their stuff out and you can't even understand them because this guy talked over the top of this guy and he was first but you didn't get anything from any of them and it's just really messy and then you know, my heart's starting to get a little bit messy and my head's getting a little bit messed up and I'm going to God and I'm just going, God, I just need you to... To, to help me here because some of my reactions started to head into the land of being ungodly and being uh, and, and not being loving toward my kids and so I'm God I just I need you to help me I need you to bring bring purity please come and just help me now there's a uh, there's a movie that was put out a few years ago called The Guardian it had uh, Ashton Kutcher and Kevin Costner in it and it was all about the uh, Coast Guard rescue swimmers I'm just going to show you a clip from it. Uh, is this great scene where they're partially through uh, the training camp for uh, Coast Guard rescue swimmers. And um, Kevin Costner is kind of the old, the old sea dog who's uh, been out and done lots and lots of rescues and he had something really tragic happen and it kind of messed with his head a bit. So he came in and he started doing the training for um, rescue swimmers. And uh, these are the guys who go out in the middle of a storm, huge waves, a boat's capsized. They, they go out when no one else goes out, basically, and they go out to save people. Um, check this. Get up! Class 5506, will you come find me if I am lost? Yes, Chief! Will you come save me if I am drowning? Yes, Chief! I believe you would. I have high hopes for this class. I have high hopes for you. I firmly believe that there are lots and lots and lots of people who are asking that question on the inside. Is someone going to come and help me? Is someone going to come and save me? You know, I think I had for years this uh, idea that, there's, uh, that everyone's just an opponent to hearing the truth about Jesus. And you just kind of got to go out and you've got to butt heads with people. But you know what? It's not, it's not true. There's actually a lot of people, and deep down on the inside, they're in trouble. And they know they're in trouble. And it's possible that there's people here who are just going, man, deep down inside, I'm actually, I know I'm in a lot of trouble. And I watch superhero movies and I watch movies like this and I get a cracking big buzz because inside of me I know that I desperately need someone to come and rescue me. They're out there. And the question is, uh, will you come save them? Will you go save them? And it's not a headbutt. It's not like we've got to come up with a 35-point philosophical argument. 
Maybe there's going to be a time where that's going to come in handy, but generally there's just people that just need us to go out and rescue them with Jesus. But unfortunately, what has happened is the church has gone to messed up things a little bit, I think, when it comes to mission. And some of you probably, man, it's just really fresh and you're just really enjoying things with God and you haven't been in the church long enough to just kind of get a couple of little warps and twists on uh, the way the church thinks about mission. And I just want to hit a couple of these and uh, then we're just going to wrap up. You know, the first thing, and I actually got taught this at a church I was at in Sydney, is they made non-Christian people or people who didn't love Jesus a target. That's what they were. They were a target. You've got to think of one person this year that doesn't know Jesus and you've got to pray for them all year and pray that God would save them. Well, that just doesn't sound a whole lot like they're made in the image of God. They've got something of God to contribute to you. Uh, that doesn't sound like redemption. That doesn't sound like just serve them and love them and just come and help them, does it? just sounds like task-oriented evangelicalism and make them a target. We don't want to make people targets. We don't want to make people targets at this church. And I don't think Jesus makes people targets. It's almost like in some weird way the church does to missions what uh, some people probably say government departments do to people. You just become a number. You're just a number, that's all you are. I'm a number in the health system. Not a real person. They don't talk to me like a real person. And at some level, I think the church probably has done that a bit. Second thing that the church has done, I think, negatively, the church has done lots of good things, is uh, evangelicalism has made it mission something where you need to close the deal within 15 minutes of meeting someone. You know, like I sit down on the seat on the plane and before this thing lands in Sydney, they've got to pray the salvation prayer. Do you get what I'm saying? I've felt that a lot of my life. You just sit there, I've got to close it. I've got to close the deal. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know someone close to you died and you've got cancer, but seriously, you've just got to pray this prayer. You get what I'm saying? It's just weird, but that's kind of the vibe that the church has got sometimes. It's just like, we've just got to close it. It's like people aren't going to go on a, a whole journey where God's going to redeem them. They've just got to close it in 15 minutes and then we're just going to move on the next one. Excuse me, can I have a change of seats? Need a bit more leg room. Put me in the evacuation aisle. You know, there's a guy there looks like he needs saving. Fifteen minutes later, we're moving seats again. All right? It's a tragedy. It's a tragedy because it's, uh, it's not one size fits all. And I'm not even saying the evangelicals have said that, but I just think somehow in it, that's kind of the vibe that we've ended up with. Another one is uh, one that I've mentioned earlier. It's this whole notion of sectarianism. That uh, they're the bad people. We're the self-righteous ones, although we leave self out. We're the righteous ones. <laughs> Uh, we've got to be separate from them, you know. So what we do then is we actually set up um, programs and events because we're, uh, look, I'm just going to say, because we're too gutless to go and do anything about it, all right. So we'll set up a program and event and hopefully someone in the church is going to go and invite someone else to come because we're not going to go on their home ground. We want them to come to our home ground and, and be uh, really uncomfortable while we're being comfortable. Do you get what I'm saying? Has anyone seen any of this in the church? It just is. And then we all get together and it was a big evangelistic thing. We've got like 400 people at the thing and everyone's from church. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Oh, this has been my life. All right? And if you're new here, I'm sorry, I'm not harsh like this all the time, but it drives me nuts. I just think, man, just get some guts about you, you know, and get out there and get on the home ground. Let them have the home ground advantage. All right? And just go and love them and serve them. Because they've actually got something huge that they can contribute to you. I mean, Angie and I were just saying, we just, our street just out the back there just has random conversations, right? And it's like there's some kind of unspoken thing that happens like street meeting, right? So I'm inside putting a bunk bed together and I've looked, you know, I've, I've come out because I thought I'll go next door and see if Dave from next door can give me a hand putting this bunk bed together. Oh, there's a street meeting on. So everyone goes down and everyone stands around and they're all having a beer together and we have a talk. It's not about anything in particular. It's just like all of a sudden, in the middle of the street. And it just happens all the time. And some, some of our neighbours, man, they are so good. And they, honestly, this is weird. They don't even love Jesus, but I get so refreshed by being around them. And it's because God made them a little bit like himself. Yeah, it's corrupted, but they, they're really cool. And this sounds... Some of you are just going, this sounds really corny and really pathetic. But 
Look, when you've been in the church long enough, you actually get this separation thing going on and you think that, oh, this is a really terrible thing to admit because some of you probably haven't been to church much, but it's almost like you get this self-righteous thing where you're just kind of going, they've got nothing to offer me, nothing at all. And I've, I've got it all and I'm going to be really generous to you and tell you about the good stuff. <laughs> you get that? I don't know, I'm not going to ask you for a show of hands. Maybe I'm the only one who's been like it, but ah, it's bad. And it's actually, part of that actually comes from an Old Testament missional model. We had this guy that used to preach at the church I was at in Sydney. And to, to tell you the truth, I don't, actually, no, it wasn't. It was in Toowoomba here. He was a champion bloke. He was a pretty dry preacher. But there was one sermon of his that just stands out in my mind above everything. And that was where he talked about the transition in models between the Old Testament and New Testament mission. Testament mission. In the Old Testament, it's like the, uh, the Jews and the Israelites have got to be really righteous and holy and everyone else is going to come to them in the new testament god says i'm going to make you the temple instead of everyone coming to a physical temple i'm making you the temple and you need to go out hugely different model all right and that's why i reckon we just got to think like you're not going to have a whole bunch of evangelistic type activities of the project it's just not going to happen we're not going to do it because we don't think predominantly that that's how mission actually happens. That's an Old Testament model of people coming in. We think we need to go out and just hang out with them. And not hang out with them because they're a project and you've been praying for them. Hang out with them because they're cool, all right? And because they're nice people and because God made them a little bit like himself and just be open and just talk with them about Jesus and how he wants to save them from stuff that they probably don't admit yet. But they will, probably, maybe if the Holy Spirit does some stuff. We made people a number, all right? It's just like bums on seats, all right? We're not doing bums on seats, right? Here's the truth. No, no one's getting paid for anything that we're doing here in the leadership team. The only reason we're doing this is because God told us to and we want all of you to be really happy in God. That's why we're doing it, all right? So seriously, you can invite non-Christian people, people that don't love Jesus, tell them to come along, all right? They don't have to put money in the plate, Honestly, I mean, it's cool to be generous if you're a Christian, but it doesn't affect us whether people put money in the plate or not. We've got no vested interest in it. And I think that's what's really good about um, the fact that uh, no one's on staff here. And I'm hoping that we're going to make it till the end of the year before we even think about anything like that because I think that is such a strong um, argument in a sense. Like, just come because it would be good for you. Come because God wants to save you. Come because someone that you have never even dreamed could love you as much actually does, more than you could even dream. Come, come and be part of it. Come and let him love you. Come and let other people speak into you. The last thing is that the church has made missions man-centred. Who's seen this quote before or heard it from uh, St. Irenaeus? He was around about 200 AD. Anyone seen this one? The glory of God is man fully alive. Anyone seen that? It really got massive usage, right? You know what's really weird about it is it's, it's every single time I've heard this, that's all that they've quoted. And it's halfway through a sentence. So it'd be interesting, wouldn't it? What's the other half of his sentence? Check out the other half of his sentence and the next one. And the life of man is the vision of God. If the revelation of God through creation already brings life to all beings on the earth, how much more will the manifestation of the Father by the word bring life to those who see God? See? I think this is a classic case where the church has taken a nice quote and made it man-centred. Irenaeus is not making it man-centred. He's saying it's all about God. He's actually saying that everyone becomes most fully who they are in the image of God when they see God and they see God clearly. And this is exactly what we find in 1 John 3 verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we'll see him as he is. The gospels, uh, the missions are not mainly about saving lost people. They are, but they're not mainly about it. That would make the gospel man-centred. It's actually all about the glory of God. Ponder this quote from uh, John Piper for a moment. Missions exist because worship doesn't. God is so deserving of worship and human beings probably, here's the truth, 
all of us would be the most redeemed when we're worshipping the most. And that doesn't mean you've got to sing all the time, right? That's a very narrow view of what worship is. It's pretty jarring, but it's actually just what human beings need. I'm going to close with a clip. This is another clip from... Uh, let's get that. There's another clip from The Guardian. This is right at the beginning of the course when the new recruits have come in to do their uh, rescue swimmer course. Out of the 39,000 men and women who make up the United States Coast Guard, there are only 280 rescue swimmers. This is because we are the Coast Guard's elite. We are the best of the best. When storms shut down entire ports, we go out. When hurricanes ground the United States Navy, we go out. And when the Holy Lord himself reaches down from heaven and destroys his good work with winds that rip houses off the ground, we go out. And the attrition rate at this school is well over 50%. So if by some miracle you actually have what it takes to become one of us, then you get to live a life of meager pay with the distinct possibility of dying, slow, cold, and alone, somewhere in the vast sea. However, you also get the chance to save lives. And there is no greater calling in the world than that. Get that? It's true. There's no greater calling in the world than to save lives. When I was living down in Sydney, I'll just close with this story. When I was living down in Sydney, there was this guy who just had the biggest heart for people and he just loved people. And uh, he wanted people to meet Jesus because he knew that that was the best thing for people. And I'm not even making, making this up. What he used to do is he used to take a pot, like a, a cooking pot, um, and, uh, and some sausages and some bread, like hot dogs, hot dog buns and hot dog sausages, and he would go on to the harbour cruises for uh, the university that he went to. All right? And so people would get on there. Obviously, they're all getting smashed and getting on, getting on the turps and all that sort of stuff. And what's he doing? He got permission to stand on the, somewhere on the boat with his little pot plugged in, selling people hot dogs. All right? And you know what he'd do when he'd be selling the hot dogs? He'd tell them about Jesus. And you know what actually happened? Is people would go and get hot dogs... And then go back and tell their buddies, go and get a hot dog from that guy. He'll tell you about Jesus. Now, that probably makes, would make a whole bunch of us really uncomfortable. You just go, okay, so I'm going to be on a boat in the middle of the harbour with a bunch of drunk people selling hot dogs when they can buy food probably from the restaurant on the ferry. Not for him. And it got known around the boat that he was the guy. And people would come and buy stuff to talk to him about Jesus. This is our opportunity. Not to go out and headbutt people or to be self-righteous and judgmental, but to see people get redeemed. And the last thing is, uh, and then I'm going to pray, is just that uh, in the church here, we're really passionate about all of us being set free from, from slavery. And one of the things we're really excited about this year is actually running some things called redemption groups. And what redemption groups are about is that it's actually about taking Christians and maybe some people who don't love God, but mostly taking people who do love God and taking them through a process where they can get freed from slavery that they're under. It might be slavery because they've uh, been through some intense suffering and they're stuck in it, or maybe uh, they've been sexually abused, or maybe they've been addicted to things, um, and it's just kind of spun them right out. Maybe they've... Uh, Maybe they're really depressed and they're really, really struggling with things. We've just got a real heart to see people set free. And the one thing the church hasn't done that well, we talk a lot about miraculous redemption, but we don't talk enough about incremental piece-by-piece redemption, and that's what this is. Because that's most of the redemption that happens after you come to Jesus is it's piece-by-piece building up a free life. Ultimately, when... uh, the ultimate freedom comes when Jesus comes back. So I might just pray, and I'm done. Jesus, thank you so much that you uh, started this whole thing going. Thanks that you have a redemptive heart. Father, thanks that you want to find your lost kids. Just, uh, Luke 15 says that the main problem with human beings is lostness, and it's true. It is lostness. And lost people need to be found. And so, God, I pray that you'd help us at the project to be really good at loving and being a redemptive tool for people who are lost. 
We don't say that in a a self-righteous way, God, because we were lost and we still get lost sometimes. That's why you call us sheep, because sheep are really stupid and we're really stupid. We need you to come and find us. And often you do that through other people. And God, I pray that you'd make us a group at this church who are really, really good at seeking out and uh, seeing lost people get found by you. So much so that it trips their heads out about how good you are. Please trip our heads out about how good you are and your redemption of us. Amen. We're done. It's been a long morning. I wrap it on. But I hope that uh, God spoke to you out of it. If uh, you want to talk to anyone about any of that sort of stuff,